1: And welcome to Forma Podcast, the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White and we have a very, very special guest here with us today. We have Alicia Stallings, or some of you may know her, A.E. Stallings, very well-known American poet, translator, and critic who's lived in Greece since 1999. And I'm really looking forward to talking to her about that. Alicia has published four collections of poetry, most recently, Like, which is excellent. We've mentioned it several times on Forma, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and then also verse translations of Lucretius, The Nature of Things, and Hesiod, Works and Days, which we're gonna talk about today with Penguin Classics. Alicia has received grants and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundation, United States Artists, and the MacArthur Foundation. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. That is quite a distinguished bio, but one of the things (laughs) I really... Uh, have enjoyed about following your work, Alicia, is that you do have this distinguished bio, but you also have this connect- very strong connection to the humanity of people around you. Uh, you are an academic, but also just a very present human being. So I do want to talk about that a little bit today, too. Uh, but let's begin with your work as a translator. Uh, so I have right here in front of me your translation of Hesiod's Works and Days from Penguin Classics. And I am um, an avid collector of beautiful books. so I have <laughs> a, a very wide selection of penguin classics and it's really lovely what they've done with with your translation. Uh, they did so, a book. Oh, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. So but tell us why Hesiod's works and days, what brought you to this particular book?
0: Well, uh, perhaps coming out of translating Lucretius, I'm sort of destined to um, translate. Didactic epics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it was commissioned and um, around the time my daughter was born, in fact, and uh, that was just before or just at the point where Greece was hitting this extreme economic crisis. So it became a very experience because I had always thought of Hesiod as, you know, kind of fuddy-duddy, dusty, misogynist, um, dull, old-fashioned. I think I had read um, some you see it in college in translation. Instead, it ended up being very much in conversation with things that were happening in Greece. And um, the whole experience ended up being quite a revelation, I think, <laughs> that I expected him to be one way and I found him to be completely otherwise. Because Key Works and Days is about being concerned about debt, hmm. being concerned about work, being concerned about putting food on the table, being concerned about corruption, um, and about and about nature and all of these things end up being very, very topical. Wow. So you you live in Greece since nineteen
1: ninety nine. That's quite a long time. Is Greece your homeland now?
0: Hey, Greece is home. I I certainly I've Apparently, I now talk about when I talk about Greece and the Greeks, I use we (laughs) Uh, (laughs) pointed out. I mean, I obviously I still um, I grew up in Georgia and I I love going back and I have friends and family there. And that's home also. So I guess they're they're both home. (laughs) Sure. I
1: I find your life very interesting. I mean, I don't. This is the first time we've ever talked. I hope that sometime we talk again. But you, in many ways, inhabit three different worlds, right? You are American-born, grew up in Georgia. You also live in present Greece. And then in a very real way, you inhabit ancient Greece as a translator and a student and a scholar. So tell us, you live in Greece, which is no longer the Greece of the classics. But is, is is he still relevant today?
0: Well, I think he is very relevant. Um, And one of the striking things about having studied classics, but living in modern Greece is you come to appreciate Greek as a continuity. Mm. Uh, I don't necessarily think of something as being modern Greek or ancient Greek. It's partly that there's a a huge... um, overlap of vocabulary and, and words. Um, it's it's still the same language. In Hesiod, that means a lot of the words are exactly the same, in fact. I mean, they're not morphologically any different. Um, and some of those words are very important words, again, for the economic crisis. tokreos, um, which is debt. krima, which is money. OK, Hesiod, in Hesiod's time, they didn't really have money. But he, he uses it in that that sense. Um, emporia, which is the marketplace, kerdos, which is gain, um, vios, uh, life, a manner of living, um, viki, suit, trial, judgment. So these words are even in the newspaper mm. and that form. And it really strikes me, I think, um, as as the unity of the language. And I think also there's so much that's diachronic and there's always this sense of all of these Strata and levels of history overlapping and dovetailing in really kind of strange ways, so I think that's also it's not as if it's this Homeric bronze age antiquity Hesiod is talking about a present tense he's not talking about some glorious past hmm. he's about, and it's that Greek countryside, so in some ways it's very similar. And he also has this very modern notion of things having gotten worse, Hmm. that everything is getting worse. And, (laughs) Hmm. um, it seems again, just very present to me. And even his obsession with, uh, famine and, you know, having enough to eat as recently, 1942, 1943, when, um, my mother-in-law was a little girl in Greece There was this huge famine in Athens. A hundred thousand people died in Athens. So a lot of these concerns are not that distant, it seems to me here. And uh, I certainly felt that it was very present. It was very modern. It was very contemporary in some ways. Well, very human, right? I think that's one of the things about the classics that a
1: lot of people don't know is how very Human, these concerns are this conversation between Hesiod and Perseus and and the the virtues of work. Yes, the, so talk to us, tell us how as you were translating Works and Days, how what did you see in Works and Days that was relevant to what you were going through in this Greek economic and migrant crisis?
0: Well, I mean, it is interesting because as the Greek crisis economic crisis kind of just blended in to this refugee and migrant crisis.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, I also started to notice that Hesiod is himself the son of economic migrants. His father came across the sea from Asia Minor, um, basically from that stretch of Turkey that's just across from Lesbos, where you're seeing all these dinghies and boats coming now. Just the idea that the Aegean was always this highway of migration, one, one direction or another, that he was an economic migrant, that he is concerned about how citizens are treated and non-citizens in a city. Um, there's a line about that, that he feels that a, a just city treats its citizens and its foreigners alike according to the law, or with fairness, I should say, according to the law. So, and his concern about corruption the fact that he's in a lawsuit with his brother over property, everyone in Greece is in a lawsuit with their brother over property. Um, huh. it's common. Um, so it, it seems in some ways um, to be sort of still happening, as it were, when he talks about the judges as being bribe eaters, as being doro fagi. And you'll have to excuse, I, I pronounce ancient Greek now as I would pronounce modern Greek. Anything else sounds really strange to me. Um, so it really struck me that, uh, again, Dorofagi could be in a Greek headline. Mm -hmm. And though it's not a modern Greek word, it's immediately intelligible as a bribe eater and, um, could easily, you know, make any number of headlines in Greece. So I think that's, it's one of the things that just kept striking me and, uh, and even the concern about the land, his, um, His observations about the seasons changing. I started looking, you know, when is the top leaf of the fig tree the size of a crow's foot? You know, you started paying attention to these nature signs around you. Um, His concerns about how dangerous sailing is, you know, when we're in the Eastern Aegean with all of these continuous shipwrecks and drownings. It just made me realize, um, again, this diachronic. Um, nature of the Eastern Aegean and um, of Greece. So tell me, for our listeners who aren't
1: familiar with that, will you explain what you mean by diachronic?
0: Um, The sense of being aware of things through time, um, Mm -hmm. of the sort of cross-section of time, that, you know, you're aware of there are these modern buildings in Athens, and then there's always the Acropolis peeking out. And then the more you you learn, you know, the more you realize, oh, and this is a Byzantine church, or, you know, this is a neoclassical building, and and all of these things jostling elbows at once. Mm-hmm. And how so many themes come up again and again. With Greece, one of the great themes is debt. The modern nation of Greece was founded on a an impossible debt. And Byron talks about the debt crisis. Uh, So it's sort of interesting to go back to Hesiod. And, you know, one of the great concerns is not to be indebted. And if you are indebted, how to get out of debt. Wow. One thing that
1: always strikes me in reading Hesiod, who's and I read a lot of Homer. I teach great books i'm I'm more of a literature person. I'm not a translator like you are. but one of the things that strikes me about Hesiod is how present he is in his own work and how he tells stories in uh, in speaking of these things like debt and work and uh, these economic issues, he brings in the narratives and the tales, the stories, what we would call the myths, right, of, of his land in order to instruct his brother on what he should do. Is that a, you know, can you comment on that, the importance of storytelling
0: in these large well, issues? yeah, I think, and, and his presence is, again, what really surprised me going back into it, or maybe not having not paid much attention to him before. You know, we think of Homer as this anonymous, sublime, we don't know anything about Homer. Right. Um, but Hesiod, he's the first named poet who names himself in Western literature. And, you know, he's like, you know, I, Hesiod, Um, And he talks about his biography. I love the fact that he has a bio. He has a poetry bio and that the poetry bio includes having won this great prize (laughs) (laughs) is, is very um, uh, true to poets. I (laughs) I love that. And uh, he's the first poet laureate, um, you know, given his staff by the muses himself. And um, he has a little bit of self deprecating humor, which I was sort of surprised about when he talks about his great, journey to the island of Evia, Ubia, which again, I think when I was living in Georgia, all of these words, you know, they, I didn't necessarily go look on the map, but you know, living in Greece, you realize what a literary joke it is that he's had this great journey to Evia because it's, you know, it's a matter of maybe 125 feet at its narrowest. So these were aspects I think that surprised me. He is always bringing in, he's, he's, brings in Animal Fable, he brings in Pan, the myth of Pandora. He's the first poet that gives us the myth of Pandora. And I like also that Works and Days is very conscious, it seems to me, of being a sequel to the Theogony. And in fact it starts off practically with, by the way, in the Theogony, you know, when I talked about there was one strife, I was wrong. There's really two strifes. There are two kinds of strife on this on this planet. And how when he retells the Pandora story, he cha- he brings in the jar. That's a new thing in the works and days that's not in the theogony. Mm-hmm. So he seems to be very conscious, assuming, you know, that theogony and works and days are both by Hesiod. I know there are scholars that would object even to his being a real person or having a real brother. But to me, um, he really seems like a person and a personality. you right. um, though he's you know, working in the same dactylic examiner and, you know, epic vocabulary and formula and so forth as Homer, there are words in Hesiod that would never be in Homer, you know, whether it's, you know, anosteos for the octopus, the boneless one, those kind of things, or, you know, talking about a woman as being pigostolos, which is something like having her ass tightly rigged or something (laughs) Um, things would never appear in Homer. And they they feel to me um, like a personality and like a voice. Right. Right. So
1: I am very interested in the issue of the two kinds of strife. And I, I find that very relevant, particularly in economics, which is how he see it applies that idea. Can you comment on that and, and your translation of that and how you thought about that?
0: Well, it is very interesting to me because basically there's this sort of evil strife, which is, you know, what causes conflict and war. Um, But then there's the good strife, which is basically competition Mm -hmm. and the idea that poets are in competition um, the way they're the same as potters or or any other um, person who's making something. And um, he certainly is, I think, Essentially the first you know western economist um, and as he is the first of many many things and i you know I love that line where he talks about poets hating poets and and um potters hating potters, and uh, the idea that art is a kind of good competition, and you know in the in the Greek it's also. Which I wasn't able to fully get in my translation. I'll see if I can find my bit. but um, that the line about potter hating Potter, builder hating builder, beggar hating builder, and bard hating bard, those two lines, um, you know, it's like And that those heavy, almost spitting, you know, um, it really, again, comes across as having a lot of personality. Let's see if I can find here what I do with that. It turns out strife's a twin, a double birth. There are not one, but two strifes on the earth. A man who gets to know them both admits one's blessed, one's cursed. The two are opposites. Um, and he goes, I think I, here's my, um this strife, the good strife, is boon to man. And that's why in this life, Potter hates Potter. Builder has no regard for builder nor beggar, beggar, bard, moods bard.
1: Hmm. Wow. I mean that that is so relevant to we I mean, just human life, right? Particularly, I suppose in Greece. So where <laughs> so Right now, this particular, I mean, you you translated this, you said when your daughter was born, so at nine years ago, ten years ago?
0: Well, yes, I started on it like nine or ten years ago. Yeah. It's a long time, and it's not a long poem. So um, my excuse, I think, was partly Greece was going through so much. Um, it didn't very slow progress. And then sort of late in the day, Penguin talked me into doing not just the sort of little translator's introduction, but the scholarly introduction. And, you know, I ended up falling through all kinds of rabbit holes in the library and doing a lot of research because um, I had been sort of approaching it more as a translator than as a scholar. And I realized I had been thinking about this so long, but sort of context of much scholarship um, without ever having taken a class on Hesiod, for instance. Um, that I had developed all kinds of maybe slightly unorthodox ideas about him and I had to go and and really do the research to kind of support um, some of those ideas or premises. Um, that sounds really fun, actually. Did it you was, was fun. Yeah. I did. Well, I, 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 it was terrifying in some because I felt like I'm not sure maybe I'm out of my depth here. Um, I mean, one of the things that happened to me kind of late in the translation process, I was reviewing a, a new Iliad translation and getting to that line in, I think, the chapter on Patroclus' funeral, mm-hmm. and Am- Amphidemus. Mm-hmm. And I was suddenly really struck because Amphidemus is the name of the, the king whose funeral um, he wins the poetry contest at. And I just, it suddenly seemed very clear to me that the Iliad line would have to come after the Hesiod line and not the other way around. And then I realized that for the ancients, Hesiod was older than Homer. Mm-hmm. And I started to think about what, what if we kind of embraced that instead of this assumption we moderns have that Homer is the older, um, kind of went back to that, the ancient. Um, idea of Hesiod as being at least a generation older. And it, it really changed my view of the poem if I thought of the poem as this kind of almost first effort at a written composition in alphabetic Greek instead of something that sort of comes off of or after Homer. And obviously, this is not something that can be proved one way or the other, but it sure. changed my thinking. Of the poem and how I was looking at things, um, if I wasn't just assuming that Hesiod was sort of a, a lesser poet who'd come after Homer, instead of this is this great poet who is doing this very interesting experiment.
1: Wow. Well, th- there you go. There's a defense for always reading the names in those <laughs> epics, right? <laughs> and paying attention to those things which as a translator you have to pay attention to literally every single word so you're yeah. reading the classics through the lens of language and form as well as content
0: yes and um it it does really focus your attention even you know when you're translating in a in a classics course and you kind of go into that translation ease And you're fudging a little bit, but everyone sort of agrees on, on, you know, what the translation ease is for that. And you have to put it into verse. And I kind of stubbornly also do things like rhyme. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You have to at least come down on the side of one side or the other about what something means Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of fudge it and say, well, you know, we know that that's grammatically working that way. You have to say, I have to understand this and convey it. I mean, I might be wrong, but I have to come down on one side or the other. And um, it does really focus your attention on on details. Like, again, Amphitimus was this very big, important name to me, so I did not skim over it in the Iliad. and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. It's an association of a king with a funeral, um, you know, in this epic setting, and uh, it immediately brought to mind Hesiod. So it does focus your attention in these ways. And I also find with rhyme, which of course the ancient epics did not rhyme, Mm -hmm. um, but I find it useful in translating. Partly it kind of pulls um, the language along and partly it really starts to focus you on larger units than the line. For instance, if you're translating into rhymed couplets, you're having to look at larger units than the line. And then in the Hesiod, it was kind of fun because it turned out I was always trying to have the rhyme be kind of a load-bearing word um, in this book about work. And those couplets ended up really reinforcing, I think, Hesiod's core message. So, you know, work could be rhymed with shirk, toil with soil, and um, there were ways neighbor with labor um, that... I I hope that the rhymed couplets were kind of reinforcing um the themes of the poem. Right. Well that that rhyme that in English that is how we make a
1: poem as you I really love that phrase the load-bearing word. Right? That's when we're talking about form that's what happens is there's there's something formal that kind of t- bears the weight of the meaning or the content of that particular line. And that's where everything goes and is focused toward. And in English, it does tend to be rhyme. Obviously in the ancient epics, it wasn't. Right. So I just I think as the work of a translator is so interesting. And, and that in some ways to me, I don't know if this is true or not because I don't translate, but you also write poetry, which is again, paying attention to every single word and those right. formal elements and in connection with the world around you and being a witness to your world, our world. So the poet, even the kind of translation is immersion, these ancient words, uh, whereas poetry, you writing poetry is going to be more immediate and connected to your particular moment in time. Those two things are all of a piece in a way because they are just paying attention.
0: I I do think of them as sort of both sides of a coin, or they're um, they feed into each other. I i love translation, and I, you know, anyone who's a poet who has another language, I really encourage them to do translation. Um, for one thing, because translation is a kind of again really intense reading, but also. You know, it's terrifying as a lyric poet uh, to face a blank page. Um, You know, you might write a beautiful sonnet one day and be very proud of yourself, but the next day you're still, you know, have to start from scratch. It's not like writing a novel. But translation kind of gives you um, that freedom to have a project where, you know, you can work on doing 20 lines a day, which I consider a very, very good day. And uh, you, you kind of know what you want to say. It's how to say it, and you're using all of the muscles um, that you would use for poetry. Um, but there's some of the pressure is off. You know, you know, you don't have to come up with the poem. And you know, it can be fun to be to be a different person. You know, to he see it, you know is this very 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 dead white male, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I can be someone else for a while. And, and that's interesting. And I love just learning things. Maybe that's why I'm attracted to these sort of philosophical didactic. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, and part of the fun is with something like he said where you're doing advice, you know, about chilling the soil and so forth. And it's part of what he's doing also is putting it in verse is is partly showing off. It's not that he really thinks that anyone is going to, you know, build a wagon, using his poetry. It's about, look, I can even address something very prosaic, as it were, and do, you know, in verse. And uh, it's a little bit of that competition and and showing off. Right. Well, those particular things are so human, right?
1: They... They orient us to the time and the place in which he is the wagon and the, the shape of the leaves. And some people get lost in Hesiod when they're reading kind of that section and their attention wanders. It's maybe not as interesting as Prometheus and Pandora to the modern reader who's reading it for the mythology maybe. But that, mm-hmm. that stuff is so orienting to time and place, particularly for you who actually lives in that land.
0: Yeah, I think it, 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 I mean, I pay attention. It's one of these things, this summer, for instance, I noticed the first day that I saw the yellow thistle blooming and the cicada singing, and I thought, oh, that's you know, this time this year. And again, you having a sense of the geography, you know, what he's talking about traveling certain distances, and you have a sense of what that is. And we, we went to visit Askra. There's a modern town, Askri, very, very close to what would have been ancient Askra. And you can go into the Valley of the Muses and it's, you know, even though Hesiod is not maybe the best um, tourist motto guy for Ascra because he says it's you know horrible in the summer and miserable in the winter and never nice at any time of year. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which they, you know, modern Ascra doesn't have anywhere on any of its brochures, I assure you. But that's the sort of complaint of this, you know, out of the way little market town with nothing much going for it. Um, But at the same time, he speaks quite beautifully um, about nature. And you go into the Valley of the Muses and it's just, it's, it's a gorgeous, beautiful area, you know, when we went in September and, you know, you can feel that sort of holiness maybe of the Valley of the Muses, of this being a a sacred space. Mm
1: -hmm. Several years ago, it was, well, five years ago now, uh, my husband and I went to Greece for our 10-year wedding anniversary. And I was so, I, I loved it. But, you know, it was interesting. I, I wanted so badly to go to Athens. That was my, you know, my my big bucket list thing. I want to go to Athens. I want to see all the places and I want to do all the things. And while I was in Athens, I was so struck by the economic crisis. I was, I, I was unprepared for it. To see, when was this? This was five years ago. Yeah. And so... I mean, we're walking, you know, at the base of the Acropolis, and there's these empty luxury homes with boards on the windows and yeah. people begging outside. And I, I knew there was an economic crisis, but I had, you know, no context of it being in this particular place. Like in my mind, Athens is or was the Athens of, you know, the golden age. And but to see it in its at the time, obviously, it was five years ago, and things have evolved and changed since then. But I was so moved by how uh, broken the city seemed. And your point about the diatronic time, like your diachronic time, that it is this unfolding narrative of the land from ancient times until now. We in the United States don't have that same sense of the. Um, I'm not eternal, that's of course too big of a word, but how old this place is where you live. And I was struck by that while I was there. I saw it, the present crisis versus, you know, set juxtaposed against this ancient narrative of time. It's still all of a piece. It's still the same city.
0: Yes. And I, I mean, that's, the The crisis ha- was, I mean, it's still kind of ongoing, really kind of shocking. Um, I guess maybe since I'm immersed in it, um, I'm not so aware, but, you know, certainly closed shops, um, um, what were once middle-class people fetching food out of garbage, you know, all of the graffiti. Uh, and again, there were, you know, this huge wave of, of migration, which was, have sort of dovetailed in with that becoming really bad um, around 2015, and uh, and seeing that the city changed because when we moved here in 99, Athens was very optimistic, and of course hope is one of those great Hesiod words, isn't it? Um, where hope is is um, you know has has its dark side, and. Um, Certainly, when we arrived in 99, Greece and Athens was full of hope. They were full of hope for the Olympics, which was going to happen in 2004. They were full of hope with uh, joining the Euro. Um, All of this, of course, would end up being flipped on its head and, uh, you know, become kind of a catastrophe. I mean, Greece, what Greece went through and is still going through is, is more extreme than the depression in the U.S., I mean, in terms of of unemployment and, and so on. So it, it was just very intense. And my, you know, my husband's a journalist. So, you know, he was out there, you know, with riots and so on. We're all kind of used to, you know, avoiding certain places when there's going to be tear gas and you get into this, it's very intense, the city. Um, I love it also, but um, it's never boring. Sometimes I wish it would be boring, you know, for (laughs) few minutes at a time. I could use a little bit more boringness. Um, But, you know, and again, there was this diachronic nature, even when we had, you know, thousands and thousands of immigrants arriving in a week, you know, for instance, in Piraeus. um, It's really interesting because you can go back and look at pictures from, you know, 1920, 1923, um, with the exchange of populations and see those exact same images um, that was then Greeks from Asia Minor um, who were coming to, to Greece. And you know Athens grew hugely in that time. Most of the neighborhoods of Athens are, are named for or by the refugees who, who founded them. So I live in Neos Kosmos, for instance, the New World. Um, there's Neos Myrni, um, there's um, all of these neighborhoods of Athens are really named after places like Hesiod is from in Asia Minor and people coming over here. So again, it was a sense of this is still happening or this has happened before, um, you know, with some changes, but uh, it's not, it's not exactly new. Right. It's a kind of continuation of things that have been going on in this area of the world for for millennia.
1: Hmm. Well, let's, let's talk for a few minutes then about the migrant crisis. This is something very close to your heart, something you're deeply involved in. And I, I'm very moved, I just want to say, by your very present life in the life of this world. You inhabit this cultural and historical moment uh, intentionally, uh, and not all classicists do that. And so I, you volunteer with refugees. Tell us about some of your work doing that.
0: Well, and it's interesting to me because actually many of my fellow volunteers are also classicists or academics or writers. I don't know what, what the attraction is exactly. I'm not sure. But I just started going to Piraeus when people were coming into the port because people needed help. Volunteers needed help passing out baby carriers or oranges or whatever was going. And it was just very fascinating to see people come off of this boat, almost as if they've walked out of a war zone and how happy they were to have arrived in Europe and safety, as it were. It was just really fascinating. And then it became more chronic. And so now I volunteer at a, a squat in, in central Athens and I have gotten to know these families and the children. Um, you know, I keep in touch sometimes, even when people have moved further into Europe, they'll send me a Facebook message or something. And I also guide a poetry workshop at the Melissa network for um, refugee and migrant women. And that's been very interesting too. I think maybe some of it is just this fascination with language. It's, uh, I, you know, picking up little bits of Farsi or Arabic and Kurdish. It, it's, it's just maybe part of that fascination with languages in this part of the world. And you know, it's been very moving and intense, I would say. And uh, it's definitely very much part of my life now. I mean, even to the point, we've had some very interesting interactions. And again, my husband's a journalist, so he also reports on this. So we're mm-hmm. kind of immersed in a strange way. For instance, there's a set of refugees that are farming in, in Boeotia, uh, very near to where Hesiod had lived. And it's really fascinating to me that again, you know, there are these economic migrants and refugees. I think, you know, that's a that's a spectrum, and it maybe doesn't really matter why you had to leave, where you had to leave. But sort of repeating this this story of Hesiods of going back to the land, and um, you know, again, ending up of all places in in Boeotia. So it's that's so interesting to me really because doesn't he
1: tell? Doesn't he? Doesn't he see tell? Percy doesn't he tell his brother, "Stay away from Athens and the agora. Don't get into these long involved political discussions. Go farm and work and build a home." Is that? Does he tell him something like that?
0: He, he tells him to stay out of the out of the agora and the eavesdropping on on the the courts and so on. Um, I think that wouldn't have been Athens. It probably would be Thespia. Uh huh. Thespia, maybe. That's um, that's so interesting to me. Well, and that's, it would be a bigger it would be a bigger city than Asgard, but he, right. probably not Thebes, but probably Vespi.
1: But it's it's still <laughs> Fascinating, yes, fascinating to me. This how these as as the narrative of a nation of a land of a homeland unfolds. There's still this kind of same obsession with. Finding a place in Greece as there was at the time of Homer and Hesiod, right? That's still there. It's still
0: part of the ethos of this land. It it is, and and again, the words really strike me. You know, the word for migrant in Greek is metanastis met, metanastis, and you know that first occurs in the Iliad where Achilles tells Agamemnon he doesn't want to be treated like an immigrant, you know, who is going to be looked down on and not treated with um, proper dignity. It's very interesting to me that Western literature, Greek and Roman, is all about refugees. (laughs) I mean, Aeneas is a refugee. Um, He has to leave his city and tries to cross the sea and come to Europe for a a better life. Um, The concern about shipwrecks and drownings when all of these drownings are still happening the concern about asylum and, you know, Athens, of course, features very large as this city of asylum in all of these ancient plays. And my husband and I have both been struck, you know, he's also a, a classicist, um, rereading these plays at how much they are about immigration, asylum, refugees, and what the rights of people in a city are. Wow. Um it, it, again, just seems very diachronic, you know, both ancient and contemporary. Right,
1: absolutely. And there's, and and very human, that that is the longing of the human soul is to find a native land to come home, to feel at home. And there's there's such upheaval in the Western world, and there has always been, that people are looking for a home or cast out of their home. And uh, so... I I just I I look at where you're at you're still kind of in the heart physically and geographically in the heart of the western world in terms of that particular human existential longing
0: very much so yeah Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. This is this feels like the beginning of a conversation, and I'm full of thank you. you. So, tell us. You have a forthcoming project that you're working on. Tell us about that.
0: Well, as a sort of maybe palate cleanser, (laughs) (laughs) I did a translation of the Batrachomil Magia, the Battle of the Frogs and the Mice, a while back, actually. But I suddenly decided, you know, it would be really nice. If I could get someone to produce this, you know, as an illustrated book, and um, Paul Dry of Paul Dry Books um, took it on, and um, we have these fantastic illustrations by Grant Silverstein, and um, so it's going to be very violent, obviously. Of oh, uh, There's a, there's an introduction by a Nani Mouse, okay, who is a library mouse who's done a lot of research on the frogs in the night. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know I, I hope it's it, it's going to be a lot of fun I think um, when I are they being released tell us about them yeah I think it's coming out in the autumn so okay um, all right And I think it'll be be a nice gift book. (laughs) I'm
1: so excited about that. I love beautifully illustrated classics. I'm a huge proponent of them. And this one is just so unusual and completely unique. So I I can't wait for uh, our listeners to be able to get their hands on that. And then how can our listeners who are not yet following you or familiar with your work, where can they find you
0: and follow along with what you're doing? Well, I... I have started, you know, publishing various accounts of of the refugee work and so on. Probably one could just Google that. I am on Twitter, and uh, yeah, I think the books are available. One get them through Amazon, but it's probably better to go to the publisher. Absolutely,
1: yes. (laughs) We're big components of that as well. Go straight to the straight to the experts. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. We hope that we will form an ongoing relationship with Forma and you because we just love what you're doing with your formalist poetry and your translation. And we we love you over here. So thank you so much for having a conversation. All right. Well, and to our listeners, the summer edition of Forma will be coming out. It's going to be hot off the presses here in a couple of weeks. So if you're not a subscriber, please go to formajournal.com and become a subscriber so that you don't miss out on that. Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you again shortly.